Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. My guest tonight is Aliza Mazur, the executive director of Bikorim, Advancing New Jewish Ideas. She's a joint project of Jewish Federations of North America and the Kaminer family. Previous to this role, Aliza served as an independent organizational consultant to philanthropies, capacity builders, and social justice organizations. She hails from Chicago, but currently lives in New York City. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks. It's really nice to be here. Uh, so I always like to start you know, sort of talking about yourself and your journey and how you got to be the executive de- director of, of B. Kareem and what influenced your life along the way. Great. Well, um, I usually start this story by saying that I'm a social worker by training that, you know, I didn't necessarily imagine at the beginning of my career that I would be doing organizational consulting and thinking about how organizations grow. I thought I'd be working on a much more micro level one-to-one with people in need. But uh, I had a wonderful experience when I lived in Israel of getting hired to work for the New Israel Fund. And that really started me on this trajectory of working both for civil rights and social justice organizations, but also thinking about how we grow organizations. One of New Israel Fund's claims to fame is that it kind of grew and nurtured the civil rights and social justice sector in Israel. And I had an opportunity there to work closely on their capacity building side, um, helping to develop all sorts of organizations in Israeli society. And that's what got me started in this work. Wonderful. So what were some mentors you might have had along the way? Or how did you go into this? I mean, somebody offered this to you right at some point. I actually have a great bad job interview story <laughs> from awesome. Israel where I, so I graduated social work school and I thought what I was going to go do next was be a social worker, right? And work with clients and do the kinds of things that social workers do. But then I was very intrigued by this advertisement for something that really didn't sound like a job I wanted, be the afternoon secretary and English language translator for this office. But what the office described itself as doing as, you know, kind of building organizations and building civil society in Israel looked so interesting to me that I had to go to the interview. And I showed up in a dress and pearls because I was an American. But as you could imagine, nobody in Israel ever wears like a jacket and pearls to (laughs) anything. Maybe to the Knesset or something. So I showed up way overdressed. I interviewed with this woman. It turns out that at the exact same time I was interviewing with her husband for a social work job because the country is really that small. But in the end, I took the job with her working in Shatil, which is a project of the New Israel Fund. That ended up being a great experience. I learned a ton on the job. I grew in that role. And by the time I left the New Israel Fund, I was an associate director, both on the grant making side and in the capacity building side. So I had kind of gone, not quite from the mailroom, but from the lowly afternoon secretary who speaks all, right. all the way to the near top of the organization and loved every stage and phase of it and really was mentored by many, many people along the way. I would definitely have to mention Sari Rifkin, who is one of my personal heroes and also an amazing community organizer. And everything I know about community organizing comes from her. Wonderful. So one of the reasons I wanted to, or I guess the reason I wanted to bring you on the podcast today was article from E-Jewish Philanthropy, which announced the forthcoming at some point, possibly, combination of four organizations, one in which you were leading, 
uh, along with Upstart, uh, the Joshua Venture Group, and the U.S. Programs of Present Tense. And the article really outlines a little bit of how you got to this conclusion or this spot. But as with any written article, you know, the information was great, but I'd love to hear sort of your personal experience. You know, you're running this this organization, you're the executive director, you come in contact with other people doing this work, and you come to this conclusion uh, over a matter of, of time. So I'd love to hear from you, you know, at the point of time in the life of the organization that you were, you were doing it, uh, to kind of coming to the realization that maybe this was a fantastic idea. Great. Well, maybe I'll just say something a little bit about how the innovation sector, which in some ways isn't really a sector, but is a lot of organizations that work to nurture and support innovation in the Jewish community, grew up like many other sets and clusters of organizations in the Jewish community. It wasn't like there was a planful thought of let's grow one here and have it do this mission and grow one over here. It was kind of organic growth. And so the first two organizations in the field were Joshua Venture, which was a fellowship, a national fellowship for social entrepreneurs. Bikurim grew up around the same time as Joshua Venture, and we are we were a physical incubator located in New York City, primarily looking at groups that were New York focused or headquartered in New York. And then, um, you know, later in the game, Present Tense came onto the scene and Present Tense is global. It has a presence in Israel. They work with entrepreneurs all over the world and they had a multi-city model. And then the last one to come onto the scene was Upstart, which started in the Bay Area. And so there were all these different efforts to nurture innovation in the Jewish community in lots of different ways. And we really kind of grew up separately, but not with any competition, really just alongside each other, kind of working in the same space. When the conversation really started, I guess one of the things I want to emphasize about going into this merger is that the conversation that enabled us to get to this place started almost five years ago. I mean, Mm -hmm. how long we've been in kind of a conscious, intentional process of relationship building. And so I think to anyone out there that is saying, hmm, maybe merger, maybe for us, it's like there's a long road to feel the level of trust and common cause that enables Mm -hmm. you to say, yes, then we should just become one enterprise. So ours started actually with, Bikurim ran a study that we published in 2012. We started it in 2010, and it was to mark our 10th anniversary. And the study was intended to really trace kind of how the sector had evolved, what had happened to some of the great startups that had gotten started, where were they now, what were their challenges. We wrote the study, we did it with an external consultant with Wellspring Consulting. And one of the recommendations in the findings of the study was there should really be more collaboration in this sector. The organizations that will do this work should do more together. So following up on the study, I basically invited people to the office for lunch. That was the, the first step out of the study was to say to some of our colleagues, why don't you come to the office for lunch and why don't we see what, what we might do together? Mm-hmm. And from that was born an event that we now co-produce, and we've done so for five years. We're going into our fifth collaboratory. We call it the Collaboratory. It's a and great it's, name. It's a great name, and it's mm-hmm. a great event. And it will actually, I'll give it a little plug. It'll be in Atlanta, March 21 to 23. And you are an entrepreneur or an innovator or an intrapreneur inside an established organization. 
and you're in the process of starting something new and growing it, we would love to have you at Collaboratory. And this um, is an annual event. It's an annual event. And we started, we basically put together an event for all of the alumni of our organizations. Mm. And there's another partner at the table that was part of Collaboratory, but is not part of our merger. And that is the ROI community, which is right. another community of innovators. So step one was we did our collaboratory and we said, you know, we all do programming for our alumni or do a minimal amount of programming for our alumni. And wouldn't it be great if we could bring all our alumni together and do something really of a much higher caliber for them. And on each round, we've been able to raise external funds and we've been able to bring in amazing speakers and we've been able to create an incredible networking place. And now I feel like, you know, a lot of the people that do this kind of innovation work are looking to collaboratory as the annual place where they can meet their co-collaborators and mm -hmm. uh, learn new things. So that was our first joint production. And that was a big like bonding moment for us. We did that. We did it together. It was a co-creation. It wasn't any one organization's thing. Mm -hmm. And that led us to say, you know, so I think looking at each iteration of our, our move towards merger, that led us to mm -hmm. say, hey, us executive directors really ought to spend some more time together. So we went to one of our collaboratory funders, the Lipman Canfer Living Torah Foundation, and we asked them if we could have a grant, a small grant, to let all four of our, all five of our executive directors go away together on retreat. So we went away on retreat. We hired a facilitator to help us have good conversations with each other. And we really spent that week at sort of looking at our sector, looking at what we had done, looking at where we had overlap, looking where there were gaps, starting the conversation about what it would mean to do more together. Mm -hmm. One of the things, and I always laugh about this because it was like one moment in a long, you know, two day retreat, someone put a little sticky note up on the board and that said merger question mark. And that started the conversation that was right. Really we were like in the middle of doing all this mapping and looking and thinking. And we all looked at each other and said, wow, we really ought to think about that. Do you so, think it would have been different if one, one of the person, you know, people in that group didn't jive as well or didn't? I will say at the time, and our dynamics have shifted, there's now some new leadership in the mix, but at the time we were five women, we're not super close in age, but we ranged from 30 to 60, I would say. And we likened our first retreat to a pajama party. <laughs> it had a pajama party feel to it. We were very cozy with each other. We like we like each other an awful lot. We respect each other as colleagues, and the feeling was just a very easy breezy feeling. What's interesting, and I will say, is now even though we're later in the game, some of the people have changed roles. We're not the same group that started. Mm -hmm. There's still a great feeling at the table. It's just right. uh, you know there was had there had to be some recalibrating and adjusting as people moved in and out of their roles. Yeah. So that's, that's really how it started. And then when we realized there was some traction to talk about a merger, we felt we needed to get really skilled external facilitation to walk us through the merger conversation. Mm -hmm. Because as anyone who's been, you know, moved towards merger or considered consolidation, there are really a bunch of things to consider seriously and to weigh. And you also need to make sure that you're bringing enough people along as you do it. So right. we created a table that had the four executive directors, because it was clear from the outset that ROI wasn't going to be a part of a merger. That wasn't mm -hmm. their trajectory. That each of us you know, came to the table as executive directors. We brought one board member. And then later in the process, we expanded it. So there were at least two board members from each organization at the table. 
And we went through a series of very careful conversations. The first thing that we did was build our little theory of change for like, Mm -hmm. you know, what was our shared vision and what was our shared theory of change. And what was sort of amazing in our process is our theory of change came to us very easily. We were very aligned in purpose as Mm -hmm. organizations. Our purposes were quite similar and our basic values and ideas about what outcomes we wanted to achieve were very similar. Was there a breaking point? I mean, I know you know you mentioned this post-note or this idea came in and then it kind of percolated in people's minds. I mean, was there something that was difficult that you were trying to accomplish on your own that felt easier to accomplish together? Was it that it just seemed natural with the the way you were moving forward? Like what was the the breaking point between being individual organizations collaborated well together and it would be a much better idea to do it all together. What was that breaking well, there point? Were sta- I would say there wasn't a moment. There were stages of moving through it. So one of the things that we did very early in our process about the merger was we did a field scan and we went mm-hmm. and interviewed different stakeholders in the field to understand what they thought of us. And that was a very enlightening, enlightening process. So, and I would highly, you know, I think not every organization or group of organizations is in a position to do this, but going out and getting some data about how you are perceived in the field that surrounds you is a very, just a very humbling and important thing to do. Mm-hmm. So a couple of things that we learned. One is we learned that all the organizations had really good positive reputations, mm-hmm. which I think made us feel stronger and better about the possibility of combining because then right. we felt like... It was a combining of equals and not a combining of like an organization that was falling apart. I was going to say most, it feels like most mergers are the swallowing of. Yes. Not the the combining of equals. And they're often very much done in a state of emergency. Like Mm -hmm. someone's run out of cash. There's some urgency. We had a long, we maybe had even too long of a runway because we spent Mm -hmm. almost two full years in conversation about it. Kind of really exploring it, poking it thinking about it. Mm -hmm. But the luxury came from the place that there were no emergencies. Right. I will say B. Kareem's board had already announced that we were going to close in 2018. Okay. We're at peace with that. The Kaminers had announced their final gift. That was public knowledge. Nobody felt bad about that. But it was for us a sense that if we don't go into something that's bigger than us, we will cease to exist and that stream of work will will cease to continue. So there was no urgency and the field scan was very telling for us. I think in some ways the field scan told us a lot of things we knew, but were hard to admit. And one was that while the field scan said very much each organization is great and has a good reputation and does good work, but we don't know exactly what work they all do. And we're confused about who does what Right. And what we realized very quickly is a lot of the things that we thought were very distinguishing about us were completely so much. Right. <laughs> and I think that's a great piece of organizational humility to have. Absolutely. And, and particularly we were concerned that end users, you know, the, the innovators out there did not know which organization they should be accessing, which they were eligible for. Was there a pipeline? Should they go to one and then to the other? Was it okay to apply to both? They didn't know. And it wasn't, some of this was clear to us, but it clearly wasn't clear to anybody else. Was it that these were all national programs? Uh, No. So we were a combination of national, local, and what I'd call multi-local. So that's the present tense, right? They have multiple. Present tense is multi-local. They're in different Mm -hmm. localities, but they're not like everywhere. Upstart had become national. They had gone from being 
Bay Area focus to being to having adding Chicago to then creating a national program that could be accessed from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Kareem was local New York, but semi-national because if you had if you were a national organization headquartered in New York you could be part of us. Right. And Joshua Venter was national. So we were all coming at it slightly from slightly different places. Mm-hmm. So one thing the study told us, the field scan told us was, you all think you're unique snowflakes and the field can't really tell you apart. The second thing that we learned from the study was that there were really gaps. There were areas that nobody was serving, mm-hmm. despite a lot of overlap or some overlap in what we were doing. There were completely unmet needs out there. Hmm. And a lot of what we heard and a lot of what we began to envision was how much more we could do and how many more of the needs we could meet if we streamlined ourselves. Right. So we're looking now with excitement at things like really serving the entire pipeline from early stage, you know, idea stage, all the way through what we call second stage or mezzanine level organizations and established organizations that want to do entrepreneurial work and established organizations that just want to bring innovation front and center in their, in their organizational DNA. Mm-hmm. We're kind of now equipped and positioned to do all of that, to do the whole spectrum and to do it everywhere in the country. So that's mm-hmm. pretty big for us. Absolutely. I'm curious the decision to go with the upstart brand. So look, like everything in a, was a negotiation. Mm -hmm. One of the things we did realize was that of the three of us, upstart was the largest. Upstart had a good infrastructure. And in some ways, I will just speak for B. Kareem, our infrastructure was very ragtag slapdash. I'm a Mm -hmm. small practitioner with a half-time assistant and we didn't have a good we didn't have an hr system we didn't have all these kinds of things that you need that we would need to absorb so many employees so so and that was that was because you worked under the hospice of of jfna yeah yeah so each each one of us had different circumstances but it was clear at a certain point that upstart was the largest Upstart had built this national capacity. Upstart had a lot of funding stability. We all had different kinds of funding stability, but they had a lot of of funding stability. And we felt the brand had been refreshed most recently. I need to create a new name when bringing resources together to bolster this one brand seemed to make sense. So, and there we are. We are going to, I mean, when, when the merger goes through, we will have the Upstart name and we will all be employed by Upstart. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Our next episode is an interview with Rabbi Joshua Rabin who works for United Synagogue. And our conversation really focuses around synagogue culture and synagogue life, how we bring new ideas and new thinking into looking at these institutions as causes and not as clubs, as he outlined in his article, which was one of the most popular in 2016. Here's a little clip from my interview. It's not just synagogues that are declining in membership. It's the Boy Scouts. It's Metropolitan Museums of Art. It's an entire model that has shrunk. The question I was trying to ask myself in the article, going back to your original question, was, well, if it was a club and that model is no longer the model of today, what is the model that you see that has momentum where synagogues are thriving? And I think that whether that's in a synagogue that has existed even for 100, 200 years, or, you know, a spiritually emergent community like an Ikar or a, or a Romu or, or an independent minion, what I think those places all have in common is that 
while I'm sure they have people who just belong there and don't really participate, really the essence of the community's success is defined by people being all in on the mission mm-hmm. and the purpose. And so in many ways, their synagogue is a cause. It might be a cause on how you do prayer or, or social justice or, or Talmud Torah or Jewish study, but what it says about them to be in that community is what the community is trying to achieve and trying to represent. We hope you'll join us for our next episode with Josh. And for now, back to Elisa. That's fantastic. What would you say to other people who are thinking about their field and their niche and collaboration? How do you think this is you know, perceived in the wider Jewish communal audience? Well, first of all, I think in general, we've been in a period of great communal generativity, which I think is fantastic. I think it's been a really exciting and inspiring time in our community. And we've seen a lot of established organizations also take up the innovation charge and adapt and develop an innovation mindset. You know, everywhere now we use the words innovation, social entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial, and it's good. I mean, I think we have to be careful sometimes of empty terminology. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, these terms can get empty very fast, but we see a lot more of this happening. And I always feel after a period of generativity comes some consolidation. Mm-hmm. Not everything's a great idea. Not everything's built to last. Right. Uh, not everything can be sustained by the community. We do in our community have a lot of established institutions with a broad resource base, but some of them have not refreshed themselves in a very long time. And some of what needs to happen is integration. Mm-hmm. And also, you, some, everyone can't see me, but I'm nodding. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> and some things, yeah. look, some some of these new ideas are fantastic, but they are not going to survive as standalone organizations. So that's something else I wanted to to allude to a little bit. And I was hoping to be able to eventually talk with somebody from a foundation is that I've noticed the foundations really love innovation and they love new projects and they love new stuff. And I don't know, haven't yet decided on my own, the benefit to being preferential to new and exciting and pumping all this money into new projects and organizations and ideas as opposed to right helping do that refreshing for our longer standing more established organizations that you know maybe just need a little bit of guidance but it's a lot harder to get money to re-guidance your general fund for something that you think you do well your constituents think that you have value um you know how do you compete against the flashy, new, exciting ideas that are out there, um, especially when it comes to foundation funding? Well, I mean, I also think we have to realize and remember that foundation funding is a fraction of the philanthropic dollars that are out there. Mm -hmm. And most of our longstanding institutions are supported by individuals. Mm -hmm. So it's, which is not to discount the role that foundations play and how pivotal they they are in kind of shining light on things. But I also think sometimes we over- we kind of overstate the role of foundations in determining the face of the community. Mm-hmm. But I think you're pointing to a real challenge is sometimes we use these terms and even though we consider ourselves to be in the quote unquote innovation business, mm-hmm. which we, we use that term a lot. It's not new for news sake. It's not, you know, we're not trying to put new coats of paint on everything. We are really trying to help the community work deeply to do its very best. And sometimes doing its very best means to stop doing things that don't work right? and start doing things differently. But that mindset 
could happen in anywhere. And I think part of what's exciting about this new expanded upstart is that we really want to work in all sectors of the community. Mm -hmm. We want to continue to work with innovators and entrepreneurs, but we also want to work with established organizations in thinking about that refresh. And we want to, you know, we kind of work, want to work in all directions on thinking about when we try to do things differently and why, and then how we do them really well. Well, I love the idea to circle back to the beginning of this conversation, right? The fact that you and these other executive directors said, hey, let's get together because we do similar work. So I'm originally from Los Angeles and out there I was very involved in their Jewish professional organization. And, you know, in my graduate school work, I always thought I was like, wouldn't it be so great to have, you know, a round table for uh, directors of development and a roundtable for executive directors, just some way to connect all of these pieces that feel so individual. And I was lucky enough to find it was executive director for a synagogue out there. And I was lucky enough to find three other executive directors of the other synagogues in our very small area. We loved hanging out. We loved talking about our work and, and collaborating. But it doesn't always seem to feel that open and people aren't necessarily that willing to sit down together or go on a three-day retreat with the executive directors of your competing organizations. It always feels very, you know, you're fighting for your resources and, and that collaboration misses. So when you talk about your collabor- collaboratory. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, I want to go to your collaboratory. I don't want to start a new organization, but, you know, thinking about ways that we connect, especially on a national level. And part of that, you know, was impetus for this podcast thinking, you know, there's so many wonderful people. When I I read something, I want to know more and I want to connect other people to those they want to hear from. So they read something like this great merger and they're like, wow, I, I, you know, how is that relevant to my work? And, you know, one of my goals is here, I've got you to help enlighten, you know, put a little light and help some people think a little differently. So how do we bring the the collaborative spirit, give it a, a shot into our Jewish communal regulatory life? I, look, you're raising a really important challenge. You know, one of the things that sort of threw me for a loop when I started working in the Jewish community was this sense of people being very territorial, very proprietary, playing their cards close to their chest, not necessarily being so welcoming to their colleagues. And I was like, I come from Israel where, you know, maybe it's a cultural thing, but the atmosphere would there it's not like we collaborated all the time and there was still competition between organizations. I'm not trying to paint it rosy, but there was so much more informality. And I think I came here and I was a little bit shocked by the level to which Mm -hmm. I felt people had their guard up. But I really think it's incumbent upon us to create a community where we are all trying to rise the tide to rise all boats. Like that we really see there is so much going on around us that is deeply, deeply disturbing. Mm -hmm. And if we want to thrive as a community, we cannot bring that toxicity inside. We Mm -hmm. have to find a different way. And I really think this is incumbent on every Jewish professional to say, how can I be a good collaborator? How can I be a good partner? Is there a colleague around me that I can help lift up in some way? Where could I create an affinity group just like you did with those synagogue leaders and said, hey, let's all sit around a table and see how we could help each other out. Mm -hmm. And sometimes help each other out doesn't even mean doing anything material. It just means I'm going to listen while you share a challenge you're going through and give you my best listening. And maybe even by just talking it out out loud, you're going to come to some conclusions or I'm going to share something that I tried with you or whatever. And everywhere I go, 
I think very naturally, and also this is very much the ethos of Upstart and of Joshua Venture and of Be Kareem and of Present Tense, we help people connect to each other. Part of our job is helping all these innovators find other like-minded innovators and learn from peer groups. And so much of the training and the work that we all do happens in peer groups. We could bring in fancy, fancy expert trainers and we could do frontal stuff all day long, but we do so little of that. We put people in small groups, we facilitate exercises, we get them talking to each other. And part of, I think, our goal around that is to build a collegiality that will sustain people for the long haul. I mean, and is that part of your thinking (laughs) for what you'll be able to do as you expand your work as one unified organization? Absolutely. I mean, just the fact that our combined alumni community will now, instead of each organization having several dozen alumni, although present tense has kind of a larger number of alumni, Mm -hmm. but instead of each organization having a couple dozen, now we're going to have hundreds. Mm -hmm. And we can bring those hundreds together in really interesting ways. Um, not just physically, but through technology. That's excellent. And so what do you see for yourself? I mean, I know it's you know, still conversations as far as mergers and this is something you, you kind of fell into yourself. You know, is there a particular role or area in this new merger that you're like that? I want to do that. <laughs> we have talked about roles, although roles have not yet been publicly announced because that's one of those things Absolutely. Attorney General doesn't like you to do. But we've all, what we did, which was very, which I think is cool and is a really unique opportunity, is we all got a chance to say, where do I feel I can make my strongest contribution? What do I see us needing as a team? And to really configure roles that make sense for each of us. Lisa Lepson from Joshua Venture and myself will be joining the senior staff of Upstart. And we are all looking at, you know, having unique roles, which we will announce when we can. Absolutely. But um, I'm excited about this role that I have. And we've already brought um, our senior leadership team together to do some visioning work. We were just out in San Francisco last week, all working on the vision. Every time we get together and do that, it's very exciting. It's very energizing. Yeah. So you're staying in New York City. Yes. Yes. And we will now have a headquarters in New York. I mean, not a headquarters. We will have a satellite in New York, our headquarters. Oh, excellent. Well, that, I mean, that's definitely an exciting part of that merger is being able to expand where you, where you're able to do your work. Yes. Wonderful. I'd love to hear any other thoughts you have about, you know, advice for people who are out there who either, I mean, let's start with innovators. I mean, Mm. I had an idea for a podcast and (laughs) and here we are. Luckily, you know, my idea didn't really take, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or long-term planning. What do you say now that there's this new, strong, multi-fingered, right, with exciting new things happening. If you're someone with an idea, you're somebody who thinks you're an innovator, or you're somebody in an organization that you think could use a little innovating, (laughs) or you're just someone, you know, starting out in the field, what would you say to them? Well, the first thing I say to anyone who's kind of on the path to a new idea is to say, first of all, do some research. Before you go running off and starting something new, go see what's been tried, go see what's out there, go see who your comrades in arms might be, you know, who are the other people that might join forces with you. The two things I always caution people against is reinventing the wheel. If it's already been done, then at least go learn from that experience before you try to go do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, going it alone. Because entrepreneurship is very, very lonely. And it's hard. And it's a slog. And if you're going to do something new, even if you're an entrepreneur doing it inside an organization, you need people to help you. 
And so the very first thing when someone comes to me with a great idea, I'm, my first two questions are, what kind of research have you done on this? Like, you know, have you just been dreaming in your corner or did you actually go and look to see what other Jewish podcasts are out there? Who else is doing podcasts? What are they like? What's their tone? How do they get made? How do they get produced? Who pays for them? How, what's their financial model? Like the curious questions that help you figure it out. The second round of questioning is who's in it with you? Who are your other stakeholders? Who is going to help you get this going, make it big, take it somewhere? I'm always impressed when I hear ideas where people say, well, look, here's kind of my analysis of the landscape. Here's what I figured out what's going on. Here's where I think my idea fits and adds value and makes a new contribution. And here are the people I've brought along because I've gone out and I've talked to you know, so many people about it and they've gotten really excited and they've wanted to, you know, become a part of it. Mm -hmm. And really good entrepreneurs are be able to bring people along with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. I always love the idea of people having a personal board of directors. Mm -hmm. It seems like for this, it's a, a project board of directors, right? Yes. You know, that and group it's of like you're having it. It's like, who are you going to troubleshoot and problem solve with? Who are you going to share your victories with? When something really exciting happens, who are you going to call? And I think it's very important for people to put together a team. But I also am cautionary. It's not just a team of cheerleaders. It's not just a group that's going to sit around and say, you know, go, Michelle, go do your podcast. That's great. But it's a group of people that at some point are going to also lend a hand. They're, right. going, to try, they're going to make connections for you. They're going to help you open up a distribution channel. They're going to help connect you to some resources. They're going to help you source interesting people to speak on the podcast. They're going to help you move it along in some tangible way. And that makes me think of the flip side. What do you say to people when they fail? What is the advice on the flip side of that? You know, someone's been, been doing all this work. They've got this great idea. Maybe they have found funding. Maybe they've done it for a couple of years. And not saying that your organization has failed, but your organization has, is evolving into a new stage. How do you recognize that in, in something you might be so passionate about or working so hard for so long to say, you know, maybe it did its service and it's, it's time to move on? So those are great. First of all, not everything needs to be built to last. And I think sometimes we make that error. Mm -hmm. and one of my great teacher mentors is Schiffer Bronsnick. And one of the things that I think Schiffer did with Advancing Women Professionals, which was brilliant, was she structured it as an intervention. She didn't build an organization. Mm -hmm. she, she staged an intervention. She wanted to show the community something about how it was behaving and its practices around gender equity. She wanted to move the needle a certain amount. And then she wanted to close it down. Right. Not close it down because she's got an exist strategy where the work continues, but not have an organizational structure. And so I think before we go out and build new organizations, we really need to think, does this need to last? Could mm -hmm. this be an intervention? Could this be a model that once you do it and a lot of people copy it, your work is done? Could this live somewhere that already exists? Could this live inside an existing institution? Could you find an institutional home for it? So I think there's a lot of questions to ask up front to not think that everything has to be built to last and to think about the different ways that something could play out. The other thing I'll say is we shouldn't be afraid to fail. Good entrepreneurial behavior includes a lot of fail failure. Mm -hmm. You, you know, fail fast, fail frequently or, you know, but don't, I wouldn't be afraid to fail. I don't think we want to take crazy risks because at some point, you know, we are talking about philanthropic dollars and we're talking about people's time and attention span. So I think we need to do things in a way that we believe will be successful and put our best effort into them. But I also think when things fail, 
it's great to kind of do a postmortem debrief and move on. Mm-hmm. It makes me think a lot. So I have a certificate in Jewish education for adolescents and emerging adults, which was a program out of HUC with funding from the Jim Joseph Foundation. And I believe there were four different organizations that were funded at the same time to do similar work with those that worked with youth workers and camps and, and that kind of stuff. And I think that the flip side of the question that I ask is also, right, what do you do with the people who are like, oh no, like I love that program, right? When it, that five years is over and there aren't other funders to sustain it. And you've got this cadre of alumni who really loved it, right? Had a stake in it. And now look back on it and say, really, you couldn't find funding that's so like so unfortunate and so sad. And and now you've got these people who are invested. And what do you what do you do with them, right? And I, you've talked a little bit about maybe like connecting them in other places or or figuring that out. But I know that sometimes when you sense that something, even if it was meant to be, I mean, you would have been seeing you know the end of your project that you were working on. You know, you had a cadre of alumni that would have no longer had that connection to something that was living, but something that was past. And luckily now that's not the case, right? They are now more connected with something even more vibrant. Yeah. So speak on that just, just a little bit. Like, I also think that things end for a lot of reasons, meaning, and they don't always end because they weren't good. That's mm-hmm. you know, sometimes, absolutely. you know, I don't know this specific situation, but the funders may have decided there was a better way to support this field. There was a better way to grow professionals for this work, or maybe they felt they'd grown enough professionals. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I think what I, I would say is there are no barriers and no limitations on what you all can do with each other. You can figure out what it is that you need to be doing to grow, continue to grow your work and grow your professional selves. You can figure out what it is that you can contribute to your fields. And you should, you know, I, I don't think you should hesitate in the least to feel like there's somebody, you need someone's permission to make stuff happen. Mm-hmm. And I think if there's a great cadre of people out there that are very jazzed about working with young adults and emerging adults in our community and know a lot about this, you have a lot to teach the rest of us. Right. I like that idea that, you know, you've, you've gone through this experience and just because other people behind you aren't going to go through this experience doesn't mean that the value of that experience isn't something you can then pass down in your own way. Right. And also, I mean, one of the things I often reflect on when things close, because I've been a part of a lot of things that haven't continued. You know, sometimes things have to come up in the right moment and it's not ripe. You have to wait for the ripeness. I mean, not wait for the ripeness. I think sometimes you can try to create the ripeness, but in some times things, certain things just couldn't happen in certain moments. Right. And the right, the right constellation of players wasn't there. The right atmosphere wasn't there. The right sense of urgency wasn't there. Something didn't, didn't exist to make it happen the way it needed to happen. And I think we just need to learn from those things and not discount the value of the idea that was at the core of it and maybe come back to it later. That's great. So I'd love to circle a little bit more back to you, a little more personally. And I'd love to hear from you. I mean, this is obviously a big project, you know, executive director of an organization, and now you're merging with a, a national organization taking on a new role. What are some ways that you stay grounded, stay connected, continue your own learning and growing, especially as you enter this, this new phase? Yes, the great. <laughs> How do I stay grounded? Well, I mean, I think for everybody, you need a life outside of work and you need to have a life of meaning outside of work. I think that's just a healthy, balanced person. I have a family. I have a son who's 11 years old. 
I have a very fun, frisky dog. But, you know, some of what grounds me is just coming home and walking the dog. You know, right. it's, it's getting out, it's breathing some fresh air, it's playing with my dog and feeling like, okay, I'm transitioning from what I did all day long, which is really interesting. Look, I mean, I think it's a gift to get to work on something you care deeply about. You know, like I don't mind having work on my mind because it's something I really, I like thinking about. It's, mm-hmm. it's stuff that, you know, if it sits with me, it doesn't sit with me in a bad way. It sits with me in a good way. But still, you need a break from it. And you need things that go on outside of it. And I also think sometimes I often say this to Jewish communal professionals. You also need to be able to have your own Jewish life as a Jewish a Jewish pedestrian or a Jewish civilian where you're not leading the activity, creating the experience, holding the container, you know, you just need to get to do your thing. And Mm. I feel really grateful to belong to Lab Shul here in New York, which is kind of an, you know, experimental on the edge community. And I go, you know, I go Shabbat morning and I'm not in charge of anything except being in the pews and sitting next to people and singing loudly because that's, you know, that's what's expected. And those things help a lot. I think, you know, I would say also for, in general, for Jewish communal professionals, you need to find the corner where you can have a Jewish life of meaning and not just create meaning for everybody else. Right. I think we forget that sometimes. There's a reason we work for Jewish organizations or the reason we lift this value up in our lives. And if not, there's a detriment if we're not, but the value that we initially found in, in our own Judaism that brought us to do this work, that also needs to be cultivated and nurtured. And that initially brought you joy to be doing this work, to continue to find, find joy in that. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that I get to benefit from a lot being in New York City is I get to see a lot of these innovative projects, you know, do their stuff. I, you know, there's a lot of events in New York. A lot of them are doing things in New York and I get to see work showcased and I get to, you know, like, I think that for me is really a lot of fun. So can you share with us what is the most favorite project you've ever worked on? <laughs> I'm not. Or you can't show favoritism. <laughs> let's, let's say, what's, who's your favorite child? Right. Um, I can say that I've been very moved by so many things that I've worked on and been connected to. And I think that's a real, you know, in very different ways. Um, I've had a very long connection to an organization in New York called Footsteps, which helps people that are leaving the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community to live new lives of purpose outside of that community. And whenever I go to their art shows and their events, I'm just blown away. I'm blown away by people that have gone such a long a long distance without going a physical distance as they right. you know, come from a borough away, but kind of a life transformation distance that is always moving to me. I've gotten to do a lot of work with Keshet. Keshet was an organization that was a part of both Joshua Venture and Bikurim. Keshet works on LGBT inclusion in the Jewish community. And I think, you know, it's a privilege in your lifetime to see change. And I've seen that organization really move the dial in our community and create spaces that are wonderfully inclusive of all sorts of people. Their angle is LGBT inclusion, but they end up, I think, being inclusion models for all sorts of types of inclusion. That's two examples, but they've made me really proud to be a part of a Jewish community that can evolve and can change and can grow and aspires to live its highest values. And, you know, and behind each of those initiatives was an innovator who said, hey, there's something going on. There's something missing for me in the Jewish community. I don't right. see it. I got to create it. So I'll, I'll rephrase the question. Um, what's your favorite part of the process? Mm. The process of creating a new organization. Is it the 
someone so excited and passionate coming to you or the, you know, five years later and it's still <laughs> doing great work or. You well, know. you know, it's funny. I think I used, I would have said a few years ago that my favorite part was the early stage startup, that I loved the chaos of startup and I loved the a million ideas and trying to get it all focused and trying to help them channel their energies and channel their attention and mm-hmm. get to proof of concept and all that. Right. I was excited. But now I will actually say I've spent the last few years working a lot more with what we call second stage organizations or mezzanine mm-hmm. organizations. And I actually love the piece that is about thinking about how to grow. And I just finished an, a wonderful engagement with Moving Traditions. Oh, uh, lovely organization. You know, from the youth space. Yeah. Amazing. Just an incredible organization doing such important work and really, you know, shining the light on how we should be engaging uh, teens in our community. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, they're deep, they're deep teachers and thought leaders as well as being great programmers. And just getting to work with their team and think about their growth and think about what it will take to get them, you know, to grow the next chunk that they need to grow in terms of serving participants and training adults. It was very exciting. And I, I, so now I'm getting kind of excited about the whole growth thing. A very unique place that you're in a vantage point where you can see, you know, the organizational sort of waning, right? You see these new things start to come up and you see these other programs start to to come down and how in the Jewish community it's that change is shifting slowly or over time to see that of course not every project that gets created out of yours or just gets created in general is going to thrive and, and flourish and not every project we've been doing for 60 years is going to stick around and really think about Jewish education right? Whatever the program or the standard of how we used to do these kind of programs. And then here comes moving tradition that changes that narrative of the way that we deal with these different age groups or these different gender groups or these different issues in a way that sunsets out, right? The old way we've done things. And over time, you're really seeing that arc of change, which is a unique place for you to be able to watch all that. That's great. So I was going to say, are there any other thoughts about the the merger, your your work with Bikarim or or now your new role with Upstart? Last thoughts for other Jewish professionals out there, either uh, seasoned or, or brand new? Well, a couple things I would say. I would, you know, on the merger front, it's great to try to open up the possibility. And I would also say one of the things that was very helpful for us was at the very beginning of our process, the consultant we were working with showed us a big diagram that showed us, you know, it was the continuum of collaboration. But there are a million different ways to collaborate. Merger is one very extreme version of coming together, you know, mm-hmm. consolidating. It's a big move. Yes. You could do a lot and make a lot happen with much lower levels of collaboration. And so I guess I want people to look at, to hear this story and not say, oh, maybe we ought to merge and wow, does that not sound like fun? But more like, oh, there could be so many different ways for us to collaborate with our closest colleagues or to build out that circle of close colleagues and really build trust and really better our field by working more in more close collaboration. And so I would say, Figure out where you want to be in the continuum of collaboration. Figure out how to build deep trusting relationships with the organizations closest to you. There are benefits for you to reap for your own organization, but also for the field and for the Jewish community. So, you know, I think our merger, what is exciting for all of us, and I will, you know, I will say honestly, there are days when this is a total pain 
like there was so much paperwork and lawyers and, you know, I'm not, I didn't want to dwell on that on the call, on the podcast because I don't think that's very exciting for anybody. It's not very enticing to say no. oh, spend hours on phones going over boring documents looking. Right. <laughs> it's a mess about everybody. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's, but it is. Yeah. And there's that too. But I would say when I feel bogged down with that, then I try to think about what are some of the amazing cool things we're going to be able to do mm-hmm. once we get past the paperwork. And that gets me incredibly, incredibly excited for myself, for the work I get to do, but also for the Jewish future. I feel like we can take this work and bring it to all sorts of places we could never get to as individual organizations. Mm-hmm. We can really give much deeper, more consistent services to the kind of the strongest new ideas out there and really shepherd them along. I mean, there's so much potential in what we're trying to do here. And I think that gets me very excited. Well, it gets me very excited. As I mentioned, when I saw the article, I was like, I got to know more about this. This sounds fantastic. And the power and innovation that you are creating just in that example of look what we can do, not from a place of need or, or desperateness, as you mentioned before, but from as a place of excitement and collaboration and coming together for a greater purpose and cause and ability to do that, which is really inspiring. Um, I hope for more people than just yourselves. So thank you so much, Aliza. I really appreciate your time on the podcast. Um, And we'll have your contact information at the very least your email up on the website if anyone has any other questions for you. And thank you, Michelle. I think this is so cool that you had a dream and you turned it into a reality. And now all sorts of people get to listen to things that you've found of interest in the Jewish community. It's a great thing to do. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Elisa. I really enjoyed speaking with you about your journey in merging these organizations and how you got to where you are and how you think about innovation in the larger Jewish community. And more specifically, what the role of this larger organization will now be in so many different ways for entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship. And so happy that you are retaining a position within the leadership of Upstart to guide that work. You can learn more about Eliza and Upstart's new one-stop for Jewish innovation by visiting their website www.upstartlab.org. If you have someone you'd like to hear from, whether in the innovation world or the institutional world or any other world in between, please let us know. Uh, You can always join us on our website. That's where you'll also find Aliza's bio. It's who you know, podcast.wordpress.com. Thank you for listening. Like this episode? Have a comment or a great suggestion for our next interview? Contact us through our website at itswhoyouknowpodcast.wordpress.com or on the It's Who You Know Facebook page. As always, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so that others can find us. It's Who You Know, the podcast.